and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Koichi Yamamoto is an innovative artist and printmaker who is currently an associate professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I spoke with Koichi during his visit to town in conjunction with his exhibition, Aspect Ratio, at Gallery Shoal Creek on display until February 23, 2019. It's an installation of intaglio kites and monoprints that you won't want to miss. I really enjoyed learning about Koichi's life and the very interesting path he took to get where he is now, along with a discussion about his practices as an artist and a teacher. I love near the end when he talks about how important failure is. That's not something you hear every day. Have a listen and let us know what you think. Here is Koichi. Well, thanks, Koichi, for being on my show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. So you are visiting here from Knoxville, correct? Yes. And you're hanging a show currently at Gallery Shoal Creek here Mm -hmm. at the Flatbed Building, which is where we are right now. Yes. Um, And you've had a relationship with Judy at Gallery Shoal Creek for how many years? It's almost... um I guess eight, counting eight years. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I've actually, I've been here for a few of your openings and photographed them mm-hmm. over the years. So we've met before. Yes. And I just thought it would be a great opportunity while you're here, somewhat connected with Print Austin, mm-hmm. you know, because that's happening right now. And I wanted to promote that. Uh, I just thought it'd be great to sit down with you. I've just always been impressed with your energy and how positive you are. <laughs> I don't know how open and positive you are i'm just really well thank you very much is there a secret to that i I don't know i'm just trying to i guess yeah Uh, maybe on the surface level at least (laughs) yeah 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 so you have your bad days just like absolutely yes (laughs) well for anyone that listening that might not be familiar with you at all maybe what would be a way you could kind of uh, introduce us to yourself and your work okay um i was born osaka japan Mm -hmm. and uh, moved to United States in 1983. I was 15 years old, Mm -hmm. and uh, um, I didn't do any art or anything like that at the time. Um, I I ski a lot, actually. And then there was a beginning of the snowboard. And then at oh, the time, yeah. the, there's called a direction board. And it's a very different uh, type of a snowboard and a very crude version of that. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And uh, um, that uh, exercise or the practicable drawing lying on the mountain, I guess, that sort of extended to what mm. I do today in a way. It's uh, kind of looking back and like, yeah, yeah, there is a sort of this lying, the connection between uh, my life in Wyoming. Yeah. And uh, um, that really inspired it 
making artwork today. It's funny. So you're you would consider yourself mainly a printmaker, right? That's what I do mostly. Yes, and painting, I guess. Yeah, I do. I mean, I uh, spend a lot of time doing the ceramic work. Oh, really? Prior to printmaking, yes. Oh, really? I didn't mm-hmm. know about that. It's funny how back to Wyoming, but uh, I was uh, after I finished up in high school and I was in a community college and taking the geology classes. And then because uh, in the state of Wyoming, their major income at the time it was a like coal mining. Yeah, right. And now it's a uh, natural gas and so on. So there's a lot of excavation. It's a lot yeah, of yeah. money to be made underground. So that was like a practical consideration. Yes. Like, I'll be a geologist. <laughs> um, I mean, I was definitely interested in geology okay. in a very genuine way. And then also the living in a, in a place like that and make me want to find out you know mm-hmm. what's going on underground or just spend i had one summer working in the yellowstone national park for oh instance. beautiful and place like that reminds me and then growing up in japan experiencing earthquakes and you know those kind of oh. things just make me think like well this planet is a very dynamic object though we get to live on that so yeah and you want to know more about it i want to know yeah, about how it works it. Yeah. and but so so that was kind of my very very genuine way of uh, approaching the interest in geology but uh um, and i was introduced to take some uh ceramic courses mm-hmm. cl- uh, working with the clay and then just that was it and i just sitting in the front of the wheel made up uh, mugs and then uh, cups and so on and then that was a great meditating time Hmm. And uh, so that was kind of beginning of my real artistic artistic practice. I think I'd read, though, that you maybe at a much younger age, you had maybe there was a story about an uncle who had introduced you to Gayutaku? Gayutaku, yes. Yeah. yes. My mother is coming from this island in Japan. It's called Yakushima. It's a very uh, uh, it's a mountainous uh, island. Rains a lot, mm-hmm. and then during the summer break, I'd go there, spend time with my uncles, my grandmothers, and so on. And so th- he will take me to this uh, ocean and then catch the fish. So what they do, they put an ink over top of the fish and print it. Mm-hmm. So they can, you know, they all talk about it, like, well, I catch just fish, and then so the size get bigger and bigger, but we'll prove it. So they have a actual ah. print from the paper. And then that was kind of daily practice, and it was a very crude version of a printmaking, but it is a printmaking. It is yeah. a printing, actually, from the fish that freshly cut, and then before they eat it, I mean, they'll make a print out of it. Yeah. yeah. So that was more about proof than art, right? And yeah. I mean, if the definition of the art is communication, and, and it does communicate, and then, but uh, yes, it is a proof. It is a what do you call it? Evidence of mm-hmm. the catch, I guess. Yeah. So maybe s- s- witnessing that gave you a little bit of a an idea of something. Certainly, yeah. I'm just just a living thing. Catch it right there and takes back home, and then fish is still kind of alive. And, yeah, and then and that and just ink it up and top of that slap paper top. Very very crude, you know, uh, version of the printmaking. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think that was kind of first. Um, I still have a very very strong memory from that ah. time. Yeah. And you're actually making a print from nature, from an animal. That's right. It's pretty interesting and mm-hmm. unique. So you studied ceramics, mm-hmm. and then where did that lead to? And then, um, then I applied for the uh, art school. I was thinking about uh, going to a um, different type of the art school, and I got accepted to the Cleveland Art Institute and the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland, Oregon. So that was in my mind, like, okay, Cleveland or Portland? And I asked around people, and everybody pointed direction, going to Portland. Mm-hmm. So that was the uh, 19. 1988, I think. Yeah. So I moved from Wyoming to Portland in the 88 and uh, started working as a ceramic mm. artist in the beginning. Well, I, you know, still just art school, so I had to take a lot of classes. And, yeah. Um, but the majority of the time I was staying in a, a ceramic studio playing with the clay, and then yeah. that was uh, my interest. At that point, were you like, I'm going to be an artist now for the rest of my life, or are you just. 
I mean, um, did you feel that strongly about it, or was it just kind of like, oh, this is pretty? You cool. know, being an international student, uh, it's because uh, I, I knew that I cannot stay in the United States forever. I have to go back to Japan at some point, or oh. I, that was kind of my mind, and and uh, I didn't really intend to stay. I mean, I'm still still in the United States, but uh, at the time in my mind, when mind was to study something and then bring back that in Japan. Oh, okay. um, but uh, that's what I uh, got introduced to printmaking. I had a wonderful instructor. Her name is Myrna Burke. Myrna Burke, she uh, uh, had an editioning um, practice in Portland, Oregon. It's called the Northlight Edition. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was trained in the Tamarind Institute in Albuquerque. So uh, learning from her, um, this lithography was my entry to the printmaking. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting, uh, good transition from the, uh, let's say, like wedging a clay, that physical activity, to grinding a stone. So I'm still dealing with this uh, earth material mm-hmm. and uh, working with the uh, limestone and then grind it, draw it, process it and printing from it. And just uh, that was just completely, in a way, it was a wonderful discovery. It's a shocking for me that I, I rather spend time in printmaking studio rather than clay studio. Yeah. So, so that was a big transition for me. And then, um, and another thing that is a clay, I mean, I, it's just wonderful materials and all that thing, but it takes a lot of energy, um, and also the space and then, um, it's also, it's heavy and yeah. it's hard to travel with artworks and so on, but the prints are, it's a paper. So, uh, yeah. of course I do carry plates, but, uh, doing lithography, nobody carries stone with them. I mean, they go to the different locations, the different studio and they, you know, you find a stone yeah. And then work from that, and uh, so, so in a way, it was a uh, uh, easy to travel. Yeah, I guess. Right. more portable. Portable, I guess. Practical choice. So for that reason, I think I was more fascinated to the working on a paper rather than clay. Did you have a specific style when you were doing ceramics, or do you see kind of like a through line of like kind of your style with ceramics mm-hmm. and then transfer into printmaking and yeah. forward? Similar, similar thing about printmaker and the clay, uh, the ceramic artist there, they have so much in common. It's a a sort of crossroad in many ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. um, uh, For instance, like equipment, you know, um, like a kiln or or the wheels. And I mean, these are pretty expensive stuff. And the etching press is quite expensive. So it's not something you can have in your living room. Um, So we have to share. So this sharing that creates sort of like a circle of the people. Uh, communal. communal. It's more of a communal artistic endeavor than just sitting alone in your studio. We need each other. We do need each other. We just have to carry stone. For instance, just carrying stone, you can't carry the heavy stone. Small stone, yes, you can, but uh, you know, ceramic too, that you're going to mix up like 40 pounds of clay. You know, I mean, those are pre-physical work. And then, uh, especially doing the wood firing, so stuff mm. like that. That's absolutely a group project in a way. So um, the artwork itself, but the, also the process, the interaction with other people, that was just fascinating things. And uh, in a way, that was of my family. So yeah. I spent a lot of time in the studio, both clay and then printmaking. So. Yeah, and still is that way for still you. Still right? it is. And I hope it will continue. And, and I kind of enjoyed that, that communal aspect of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you have a style back then? Style. Mm. Well, before I, uh, I'm going to try to explain about the transition to the printmaking. Yeah. And uh, uh, when I was working with a ceramic object, and then often I dry uh, those clay on the paper with a with a grid underneath, and then put a paper in the top, and to, just to separate from them, make sure that the clay doesn't stick to the uh, the wooden uh, the the grid underneath. And mm-hmm. uh, what happened was the uh, when I leave the sort of slightly wet clay on the paper and come back next day and lift the clay up so there's an impression on the paper 
So it was kind of like a printmaking already. Yeah. It was interesting. It was that uh, uh, clay holds the moisture and also the weight, so that that compresses the paper and the paper relatively stays flat. And the other parts, the open area, the water evaporates a lot quicker, so the paper will buckles up. And so it will create a little texture. So the impression of the mm-hmm. the clay was on the surface of the paper. That was the I was more interested in that rather than the clay <laughs> itself. Yeah. So later on, what I did was I uh, um, inked up uh, the lithography ink on the slab of the glass, and to bring this texture of the paper it was imprinted with the clay. And I pressed down and pick up some grease, uh, the ink on the paper, textured paper, and then transfer that texture of the paper into the stone. And then that was the initial idea for the drawing. And then I started drawing on the top of that. Oh. So, so that was, I think that was kind of interesting bridge. So, so I did bring a clay into the ceramic studio, which uh, my professor Marana Burks wasn't too excited about it. <laughs> but I kind of secretly had this yeah. chunk of a clay as a, as a drawing starting point in the medium in a way. And how did what else did you learn from her? Just about maybe being an artist or how to approach um, being uh, a printmaker? A, um, I think that a lot about light. Um, I mean, I still use that transparency, especially mixing the ink and uh, uh, with a transparent base, and then bring the lights into it. Um, I think those creating atmosphere. So, living in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, I really enjoy and go out to the uh, coast, Oregon coast, and especially in the winter time. It's weather's very, very rough there in the winter time. And uh, uh, occasionally, I went to surfing in a place called the uh, Lincoln City and mm-hmm. Devil's Punch Bowl. I think never the place was nearby. So th- th- I was really fascinated with this atmosphere. In a way, that really goes back to the, my childhood in Japan, looking to some uh, Sumia painting and creating atmosphere mm-hmm. with, a, with a very simple black and white images. So that sort of came back when I was on the Oregon coast. And so that was, I guess I, I can say this is style, but the, something I learned from the Myrna Burke. Yeah. That there was that definitely light and the intensity of the colors. And that's a fundamental thing, but I still use every day. Yeah. yeah. And so that was a four-year program? That was a four-year program, yes. Yeah, and wh- where did you find yourself at the end of that? Like End of that, uh, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier about the clay and water and, and, and that, uh, that became my thesis, actually. So oh, okay. I, I did the whole entire, uh, I spent all the time, I did do some other printmaking, such as copper or woodcut and so on. Or silk screen too, but the, um, I think at 90% of the time I was spending time in lithography. So that was my four years and did, uh, thesis was the texture of the paper made out of clay and, uh, and then uh, actual prints in the middle combination of that. So that was, uh, my thesis work and yeah. that was 1992. Interesting time though. Um, well, 89, the Belling Wall fell down. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the beginning of the 90s, like, a, lot, a lot of my friends are having a hard time finding a jobs outside. And so what they're going to do – I have a friend who was a bicycle messenger. Uh, he uh, he moved to Czech Republic in Prague. And there was, it was the late 80s, early 90s, I believe. Well, it's right after the Berlin Wall fell down. Yeah. And uh, a lot of American uh, young American uh, people my generation, they moved to Czech Republic. And because there was a, a lot of opportunity there, and there's a, they really wanted to have the human resource, so uh, so they went to uh, establish the bicycle messenger service in Prague. Okay, and Prague is the kind of city that it's not really automobile friendly. It's a yeah. it's a medieval city. It's but it's a great for mountain biking. 
And so they have the document. I mean, now they, they everybody just go through the electronically. But if they you you need to have that specific type of the document delivered right away. And yeah. Bicycle Messenger service was incredibly uh, strong medium at the time, a strong mm-hmm. tool. And so those guys expanded. They, they they're already establishing a business in Portland, Oregon. So they moved to Chicago, and New York, and so on. They so they end up in the Czech Republic in Prague, oh, cool. and doing the bicycle messenger service. And then so they told me that hey, you know, we gotta come out. Let's start some business with us. And then, I wasn't really interested in doing the bicycle messenger service myself, but but that was kind of beginning of interest. And I did have a Polish friend. And then he mentioned about uh, uh, that maybe there's a lot of lithography stones available there. Mm. Um, I was working in the Portland Art Museum at the time, and uh, for the professor Golden Gilkey, and he's uh, this man is very interesting. He was working um, for U.S. Army during World War II, and uh, his mission was to collect artwork. The Nazi Germany, they kept those artworks, and well, they're about ready to discard them. So the his mission was to collect the artwork from. Yeah. I think there was a filmmaker. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Yeah. The, yeah. So uh, Dr. Gilkey was uh, one of one of those uh, oh, wow. uh, people who were. He's a printmaker, and so he was hired by the army to collect the artwork. And he's responsible for bringing Max Beckman to Oregon, actually. So, oh wow! For the reason I got to see a lot of German expressionist print. And uh, also, a uh, uh, large collection come from Yugoslavia, or Central Europe, Eastern Central European art, that post-communist country. There's wonderful printmaking and uh, wonderful drawings that I was not aware of it. I mean, it, it was funny to look back in the 80s, well, or 80s, 90s, I guess, some conceptual art uh, sort of kind of takes over, and almost the craft of the drawing was uh, undermined, or it's almost... Uh, Teachers were discouraging us to, yeah, to yeah, draw, yeah. you know. So it was a kind of uh, the feeling at the time. So, uh, so therefore, when I saw those drawings or the prints are well crafted, coming from Eastern Europe, it was extremely fresh to my eye. Yeah, that was it. Like I want to do this thing. I want to learn how to do this thing. So, uh, so I decided to move to uh, Krakow, Poland, in 1992, and I sold it. Uh, I was playing the music at the time. I was playing a band, sold my equipment, sold my car, and, you know. Wow. And uh, I don't know how much I had. I probably had about $5,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. And then um, I bought a ticket. And so I have about 4000 US dollars at the time in cash. And uh, so I grabbed that and then went to Poland. And I didn't know how long I could stay, but um, I mean, of course, the exchange rate at the time, the U.S. dollar was a really great advantage. So my idea was uh, to not just to, uh, to to study the printmaking, but also uh, to buy time in a way. It was the amount of time I had, probably I was spending in months or two in Portland, Oregon. But if I take the $4,000 uh-huh, to Eastern Europe at yeah. the time, that I could live uh there for whole entire year um the rent at the time i was paying for what is it called uh, seven million zloty i guess that that was their <laughs> currency still is and then the seven million zloty at the time was probably, i don't know it was probably like 120 dollars or something oh wow something ridiculous and then i remember the uh, going bar and having a beer i calculated it was like 15 cents for instance oh so, wow okay just utilizing this uh, uh advantage of a uh, uh, currency exchange and yeah. then, and then, so that made me uh, gave me time to produce artwork 
but you found a school where you wanted to study I or wanted, someone to study with. Yeah, I wanted to go to school. Uh, and however, if I was become a part of the uh, student of the academy in a, a place called Academic uh, Academia Stukpienknik, it's an art academy in Krakow, very prestige institution. But as a foreign student, if I enter, I had to pay quite a bit of tuition. It's yeah. not free. So I couldn't afford it, and I talked to the professor, and what can I do? And then, so uh, they introduced me to the artist union. Uh, still exists. It's, it's a very interesting place. So artist unions uh, was a post-communist country. There's a lot of unions everywhere. And then, mm-hmm. of course, artists are a proper occupation, and they do have a union, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, supported by the local government. So uh, I went there. And uh, I think the monthly fee was like $30 or something like that. Very, very inexpensive. So I get to use their studio fully. Um, studio was not the best condition, but they did have wonderful stones and, and a very, very heavy German lithography press. And uh, so I lived there for in the Krakow, uh, in the Artist Union, uh, worked there for about nine months. Woke up in the morning, grind a stone in the morning, and then I'll print in the afternoon, and then I'll, I'll draw in the night. So about five or six stone going on simultaneously. And did that for uh, nine months every day. Uh, produced a lot of work. It was a very challenging environment. Material wasn't the same. Uh, like in the United States, you can find this prestige at the top of the um, line paper. Mm-hmm. You can find this beautiful cotton French paper. You know, you just go to art store and buy it. No yeah. big deal. You can buy lithography crayons. No problem. Inks, perfect. You can find this wonderful ink uh, from Graphic Chemicals or um, other uh, places in the U.S. very easily, right? But uh, in Poland, they're printing with a uh, offset ink, which is absolutely uh, greasy, very difficult print to do lithography. Mm. And then uh, stone, they have they have wonderful stones there. But the um, uh, like a paper, for instance, uh, they're working with a very very uh, machine made paper. It's really difficult to make a lithography out of it. So finding the material is quite a challenging. But I learned from the um, like the adaptation, the power to adapt mm. from that. They call it Polak Potolafi, Polish people can do it. That was the kind of spirit they had from uh, under the uh, communist time. Yeah. So so they will be improvising, for instance, using an eyeliner for the makeup. And they use that to draw on the stone and then to kind of act like lithography crayon, for instance. Oh, wow. And uh, doing a, a counter edge. Um, and we use citric acid. And then what they do is they use lemon juice, which is citric acid. Uh, or vinegar, for instance, for the counter edge. And uh, offset ink, what they do, they put in a double boiler so they will degrease. Uh, they don't mix magnesium and carbonate. They don't believe in that. So they will just degrease that by heating up and uh, using those inks uh, to make lithography. Acid, uh, they don't really control the acid. They have uh, this uh, really, really strong acid with a gum arabic mixed together already. So I will dilute them to etch the stone, for instance. Uh, however, it's a, it's a fascinating part was uh, when it's cold, the acid doesn't work that well, right? So the image gets darker in the wintertime. So I, I looked at the whole portfolio from, uh, from October to May. Looked at and the image get darker and darker in January and February and then March, <laughs> April is getting lighter. And then like, I was wondering, why does this come from? Like that, it's, yeah. uh, it's not, it wasn't my control. It was, just, it was cold. This time when you were there, it was just totally self-directed? Do you have any mentors or were you trying to learn no, anything? No, I, I was just producing my work. Yeah. And, and what did it look like? What kind of work? What, what I had, well, mostly focused into the drawings. And uh, and I did spend some time drawing from the nature, drawing from the city. But the, that becomes t- a little more abstract and so on. But the, um, the drawings, I think, back then was a lot to do with geology. 
mm-hmm. and uh, so the uh, so I will have a I find a, a like a crack on the street, for instance, you know, and then I would just enlarge it and then make it look like a Grand Canyon, for instance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So these are kind of things I did in Krakow. But um, this that nine months, I produced a lot of work. So of course, I, I had a lot of failure too, and the difficulty. But I learned a lot, and just be able to adaptation. I think be able to make a print in that very difficult environment. And uh, also another challenge I had was a lot of racism. Actually. Oh, yeah. Um, it was during the communist time. That I think the socialist government they uh, tried to in- encourage people to be you know close to um, another communist country such as China or North Korea and so on or Vietnam I guess so uh, the Asia uh, I'm a Japanese uh, Asian person walking in there and they automatically they think well, I'm one of those uh, communist country and uh, but when the communists failed uh, what happened was they uh, you know they can raise their own flag so this kind of strange sense of nationalism oh. kind of expanded uh, however their life quality was not getting any better so they're frustrated uh, quite often they're drunk, so uh, I, I become a relatively easy target. Wow. And, uh, I was not only one; I had a few other friends uh, who were uh, a Mexican person, and uh, um, he also got beaten up because he has long hair and stuff like that. And then that was uh, it's, it's a it's like a freedom to hate, I guess that sort of came in after that. And so it was kind of fascinating what's going on right now today in in Europe. A lot of immigration, uh, the immigrants coming from the Syrias or, or many other Middle Eastern country, and then, yeah. and then and, you know, what's going on right now. Then I kind of saw the sample of that, and then, uh, that's you know, 30, 40 years ago almost. Yeah, so you just had to keep your head down and work. Yeah, and, but the, in the studio, people are very friendly, they're helpful. Yeah. And, uh, and it's occasionally I go to academy and then in, in academy there's a lot of international students so a little more uh, easy to communicate but uh, when you know uh, in the city in the Krakow no problem but then when you go to smaller you know towns or uh, or maybe like a super early morning like 4am in train station it's, it's always the shady people yeah well, it's uh, like that in New York City. I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> just just kind of tr- try not to put myself in the, yeah. in the position so th- that was a, uh, the challenging part of the experience as well yeah and what where did you go from there? So I stayed in the Krakow for one year, and then and then I came back to Oregon. I had an exhibition, and then, uh, luckily I made money from that. And oh. then so uh, so I grabbed the money and then went back to Poland. And then so I'm gonna just want us to continue. And that time I was uh, uh, I was living in Warsaw, and uh, and I had a part time job doing the package designs and so on in the hmm. Warsaw. And uh, it was a very interesting time because the it's a wonderful uh, optimism and the many people. I mean, I occasionally I ride a train and then talk with the folks there. And then you know, and some people spoke very good English and then they will communicate. And their idea was like, oh, you from Japan? Like, well, you know, we gonna Japan was. Rise from the ash from 1945 and from the war, and Poland has kind of similar. But we, you know, the Poland become kind of, uh, the part of this uh, Soviet control. But now we're free, and then looking at Japan, and then we're going to be like a you know economic giant like you guys. And but we don't have any equipment. But I have a piece of paper and pencil. I can do the business. So so there's a great this energy, this human energy mm. that. In fact, in fact, that kind of reminds me of my childhood. 
1970s, I was born in 67, so 70s in Japan was a so-called this, uh, uh, large development in the Japanese economy and industry, the post-war. So that was kind of happening in the, in the 90s in Poland. Yeah, I think they did really well and uh, from that point. And the economy was about ready to collapse any moment. Nobody knew what was going on, really. But they uh, somehow believed it and worked hard. And so here it is. They, they really, really liberate themselves. Yeah. from the past and then making their own history you know so yeah. those and another thing i remember was uh, the smell of uh, the diesel fuel and the uh, what do you call it? leaded gasoline that's what is that mm. 1970s in japan um all the, the gas gasoline they had was all leaded so it's uh, you don't find the unleaded gasoline and then that the smell was very very familiar i guess a long-term memory from my childhood coming mm-hmm. to poland and i smelled that like wow this uh, sounds really familiar another thing that i thought that was interesting was then uh, go to the park and find some garbage and then and on a garbage can there's a pile of the banana peels banana was considered as a really exotic expensive thing during a communist time but now they're open so they can buy a banana now so, so everybody was eating banana it's, uh, <laughs> so that was a oh. yeah I thought it was quite exciting to see that how they yeah. you know, the, in a way that kind of I saw similar things in, back in Japan too so so the, there's a uh, kind of reminds me of my childhood kind of atmosphere like this country is and it's now they're driving helping themselves to be self-sufficient to be standing up on their own and then moving on, not relying, or not being uh, controlled by the Soviet. You know? yeah. So it was a fascinating time. And uh, I, I felt that uh, just tremendous energy from young people. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you went back the second time? And, and then, uh, so I ended up, I, I guess, I, uh, then in the, I met the artist from uh, uh, Slovakia in Bratislava. So I moved to Bratislava for one year. And then came back to Poland again. So uh, basically, I was in the area for about five years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I wanted to go to the graduate program. And then I started thinking about, well, you know, I have no money. And then, <laughs> so uh, I saw the exhibition in Krakow. There's a wonderful printmaking exhibition still exists called Krakow Triennale. And then I was there and bought a catalog and looked at the, all the prints. And then I didn't know any of those people, but uh, I took a note. And uh, the prints I liked, and I bought a catalog, and I compare and find out who they are, and, you know, where they're coming from, so on. I picked about 20 artists, and out of 20, uh, 10 people are something to do with the University of Alberta in Canada. Oh. So I figure, and then I uh, saw this print done by uh, Liz Ingram. Uh, she's a Canadian artist, and I saw her work, and then, well, this is it, and I'm going to write her a letter. So I wrote her letter saying, like, I would like to study under you, but I'm broke. I'm in Slovakia. (laughs) (laughs) Shooting to the moon. Back then, there was a slide, right? It wasn't digital application. It was a slide. And the slides are quite expensive to make back then, you know. So, But I sent it, those 20 slides, to Canada. Yeah. And uh, I didn't think that she's going to write me back or anything like that. But months later, I I received uh, the letter from her and then like well okay well we'll consider it but they didn't come up with the funding so i had to wait for one year and then meanwhile i went back to poland and then i studied in poznan academy as a as a, a student and then um and then later on i received a, a email that was the first email i received that was a university oh, wow. of burgers <laughs> and like yeah, okay and uh, we have a funding for you so you know come study with us so i moved to edmonton what year was that? 1996, I think. Six, 1996, that's right. And then, so moved to Canada. Very cold place. 
And you studied there for? I studied there for uh, for uh, it's a three years program, and then and then I finished my MFA. And, uh, and, and at the time, that was great because the University of Alberta has a wonderful connection with the Japanese artist, which I didn't know. I didn't study art in Japan at all, so mm. it was a great opportunity to meet Japanese printmakers, or you know, the current Japanese printmakers, and some are younger people. And then, so I get to talk with them. And so it was a, that was extremely beneficial experience of being part of the program in, in Edmonton. Yeah, and uh, as well as they have a great connection with the South America and uh, and uh, Europe. Particularly in Germany and in France, it's, it's a it's a funny. The Canada is such a close country from the U.S., but the U.S. but the uh, we, I don't know somehow being in, in studying in Edmonton, uh, the U.S. felt very far away. Yeah, I think that Japan and Europe was a lot closer culturally. I think. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I never even I don't think about Canada that much. Right. I don't I don't know how much back and forth there is but uh, yeah it's just so funny that Americans don't really think about a Canada but Canadians think about Americans all the time <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a challenging because uh, you know Canada the land is big but the population wise I think the last time I heard it was like 30 million people which is you know smaller than the state of California so it's, it's mm-hmm. Canada is a small country as far as the population mm. goes so um, it's a lot of educated Canadian in order to find a decent job they have to cross the border to come to US in a way so there was uh, some sense of the brand Drawing from Canadian government side, but the, uh, for that matter, that I was looking for the teaching position in Canada, but they want to hire Canadian rather yeah, than foreigners. Right. Yeah. So, so I didn't have a lot of choice. Then I moved to Denmark and then working for the textile design company. It's called the Georg Jensen, which is uh, uh, I, I was working for the designing for the tablecloths and cartons and so on. Mm-hmm. And so this is after your after MFA. I f- after I finished MFA, what year was it? Ninety ninety nine. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And I I just want to ask real quick, like, mm-hmm. what did you get out of that MFA program? What did you learn? How did that progress your practice and mm. your your skills? Yeah, I'm. Mean, you know, it's so funny when I was working. Earlier, I was talking about this uh, um, fascination towards the craft of the drawing uh, from the wonderful artwork coming from uh, Yugoslavia or yeah, Poland yeah. and stuff like that. And so I kind of continued to do it. And then, then when I saw this wonderful studio in the University of Alberta in Edmonton, like, and then they have this uh, its amazing the photo process uh, system they established. And, uh, and like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I got really, really excited. And then I re- realized that it really costs a lot. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it was a very expensive process. And uh, so, so I just, just somehow I just didn't feel right. So I kind of went back to the foundation of the drawing again, and uh, I was going to do intaglio, but I, but I wanted to work large. But that was the thing about the University of Alberta; everybody worked in very large scale. And uh, so, so okay, okay well, if, but when you work large, it's very expensive. The papers get expensive, plates get expensive, and I had to buy you know, my own blanket, and I couldn't afford it. So I decided to do with relief printing. And uh, I was carving on a material called Sintra. It's a it's a, a polyvinyl plastic material, and uh, very easy to carve, very inexpensive. And, um, and also, I for the relief printing, I don't have to buy a fancy paper. I bought this a drawing paper called Art Print. It's only found in Canada. Okay. It's, it's a drawing paper. It comes on a really large scale. I think it was like 38 by 52 for like a dollar fifty or something like that. Oh wow! And uh, it's a horrible paper for printmaking. But for relief printing and what I was doing, it worked great, and then, so that's that was a uh, somehow the spirit I saw in Poland, you know, adaptability and like, what can we do with what you have right in front of you instead of spending too much money. You know? Yeah, 
so that was my kind of learning from Polish spirits, and I kind of apply that in my condition yeah, at the right. time in Canada, and, the, and be able to make a very very large print that uh, opened up a lot of possibility. I saw the 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 printmaking traditionally, well, it still is somewhat. The, the, there's a size limitation, and I kind of have to fight with it. But uh, uh, but you know, being a, the part of the group in the University of Alberta and Edmonton, uh, um, it was normal to work in large scale. It was mm-hmm. it was more special, and also I worked in very small engraving as well. I mean, I'm talking about five inch by five inch, you know, small small copper engraving takes a long time to do it. But I was doing similar language, a similar type of the art form in a larger scale to make myself small and to make artwork bigger. So that was kind of my solution to make artwork bigger and in an inexpensive way. Mm-hmm. So. And all during this time, you've while you're printmaking, are you also having other odd jobs, or was there was there a point where you were kind of like able to be an artist full time, or has that ever been a goal necessarily? Um, it's artist and full time. Yeah, I mean, I, it would be it would be great, but the, the reality wasn't that easy. So, but I got the uh, luckily I got the scholarship to, to study in the, in the Canada. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't couldn't go. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, but still I was very poor. So I ate a lot of potatoes and rice, <laughs> <laughs> beans, and so. Yeah, yeah. And uh, occasionally I get to drink a beer, but if I drink a beer, I don't have money, so I had to walk home. You know, sometimes minus twenty outside. Like, oh wow! You know, ca- calculating if I ride a bus, I had to pay, you know, like dollar fifty or something but if i don't maybe i can have another beer wow (laughs) anyway young i guess being young yeah yeah hard times though huh i mean just but good it's a i mean i had a kind of goal i guess i had a purpose and then so it was it was uneasy but i didn't really think it was hard and what was your goal and your purpose at that point Uh, making producing artwork producing print okay yeah and uh, uh, fortunately, I did have a, a gallery af- uh, affiliation in the, in the Portland at the time, so so they promote me in a way. So I did have somewhat of income coming in unexpectedly, but it's not a steady income. So yeah. uh, the scholarship was major income at the time. Yeah. And then being a foreign student, I couldn't work in the, uh, in the Canada, so I I, uh, I taught classes and uh, drawing class it's funny when i was a uh, university of alberta i did teach some of the printmaking but mostly 90 percent of my teaching was drawing in mm. a way so that was a uh they had a medical school and uh, so i get to work with a cadaver that was an incredible oh, experience wow. yeah yeah i couldn't eat meat for a while but it was a <laughs> the fr- smell of the fermata highs and so on it's yeah. extremely strong but uh, just being a, in a in a hospital with a respect and you get to see this uh, body that uh, you can actually open up and you can see the inside. And just looking at my own body, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's that's what it looks like, you know, inside, and then and I can function, right? So maybe our brain's a little more sophisticated than turkey, per se, but our body, or mechanically speaking, we're not that different from turkey. That's yeah, what I, yeah, yeah. I remember that. All the meat looks like uh, those Thanksgiving dinner leftover. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. It was a brown meat left in the refrigerator for three, four days. Yeah. yeah. That's what human body meat looked like. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know how much time mm-hmm. it is from when you went to Denmark till now. Mm-hmm. How much time is it? So, that? I moved to Denmark in, in 99, year 2000. That's where uh, my son was born, and he was born in Denmark. Oh, okay. Uh, my ex-wife is Danish, and so that's why we moved to Denmark. And uh, so, gave birth and uh, raised a child and uh, uh, working at, as a designer, which I didn't know anything about textile design. And uh, studying Danish language, and it was interesting because it was a, it was pre nine eleven. But that uh, uh, also there is a definitely uh, distinction 
between the local Denmark, such a small country and a very homogeneous country, even today. And at the time, they're uh, facing a lot of immigrants, you know, coming in, uh, particularly uh, from Middle East. And they not just come in, but they uh, Somalia. A lot of large number of the Somalia refugees will come to. Denmark, hmm. and so you know they don't want to be in Denmark. They want to go back to Somalia, but they, you know, it was back home was a chaos. So they kind of have to wait. So they're kind of waiting. They're not necessarily trying to live in Denmark. They're waiting, and there was this waiting place was happened to be Denmark. But the Denmark, Danish government, they want to encourage them to be part of it, assimilated within the country, within the culture. So first, they have to learn the language. So they uh, uh, teach the Danish language, and then that was a part of the uh, it's an obligation for me too. In order to stay in Denmark, I have to take the Danish lessons, which uh-huh. is I, I thought it was quite a generous program in a way. Yeah, because I didn't have to pay anything, and I get to sit and learn Danish every day uh, for uh, three to four hours. Mm. Yeah, wow. And, and then all my uh, classmates, or many of them from uh, Somalia, Afghanistan. Uh, some are from South America, but uh, the majority of people are coming from Middle East, and then uh, we didn't have a common language, so we had to speak Danish. Oh wow! <laughs> to communicate yeah. uh, to person, you know, from uh, Pakistan, for instance, yeah, uh, or from uh, from Afghanistan. You know, it was uh, it was a once we had as a soccer uh, football match. Uh, it was a, so we had an international team. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? But we, I mean, we speak Danish, but the, in the very end, we're just going to speak one of the language, and they're speaking Arabic, and I'm speaking Japanese, and then we still you know, get to play the soccer yeah. together. Right. So that was kind of wonderful memory. But uh, So that was the year 2000. Mm-hmm. So I lived there, and then uh, I applied for the teaching position outside of Denmark, and then uh, I finally got a job offer from a university, uh, Utah State University in Utah, in Logan, Utah. So that was my first real teaching position. Okay. So uh, we decided to come to United States, and uh, same thing too. The at the time that Denmark, they were were a little bit of a, a, a roughness towards the foreigners, and that I experienced a little bit of that. And uh, in the beginning, I didn't understand the Danish. I didn't really know anything about it. But I started understanding the Danish and realized, like, well, okay, there are a lot of people saying, making a comment, just walking in downtown, in Copenhagen, people walk by and just call me a black pig like oh, okay you know so, which i didn't understand back then mm. but now then i started understanding the language like wow okay so there is a pretty severe racism you know it's funny it's a lot of european criticize american for american history to be very very racist and so on but the i think the europe is worse in my opinion i mean mm-hmm. i think the u.s have experienced that and then i mean with 1950s and 60s civil rights, move, civil rights movements and so on u.s has experienced that and i think the europe is experiencing that type of that transition now maybe mm-hmm. i think so uh so I, that was another thing i didn't want to stay in denmark too long yeah and then I would come to, back to the U.S. and then and then move to Logan, Utah, which is an incredibly beautiful place. Mm-hmm. So I taught in the Utah State University for six years, and then that was a great experience because uh, um, sort of kind of total of a. I mean, I I was more focused in lithography and then intaglio, and then and then, but the coming to actually having a real job, and then well now I can afford to buy a really nice paper to make a print. You know? Yeah. And uh, so, so that was that time that I really focused on doing the intaglio work. That that's what I really wanted to do from the beginning. Oh, I just right. post- postponing that till then. And I thought it was the right timing. So from that point, I did a lot of uh, etchings, engravings, and acrotents, and so on. 
And then from Utah to I was there for Tennessee? six years. No, actually, I applied a job in the University of Delaware and then Newark, Delaware. I was there for one year. And then, and then after that, I moved to Tennessee in uh, 2007, I think. Yeah. So I've been there since then. 11 years, still Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. So that's kind of my resume, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Maybe we could just talk, maybe the rest of the time, mm-hmm. I think I'd really be interested just hearing about your work okay. and kind of your practice, your thoughts about why you create your work mm-hmm. or maybe even the way you teach, uh-huh. you know, just kind of anything that you feel like might be interesting. Yeah. Well, in the back to when I was in Wyoming, I did a lot of skiing and then and then a little bit of snowboarding. And um, I think those kind of activity uh, that helps me to make artwork and then uh, a lot to do with the I'm particularly fascinating and it was a, a hydrodynamic aerodynamic and natural material how they maneuver and within that environment uh, such as water snow air you know combination of that things so uh, when I uh, make a drawing for instance if I have a carving onto the wood or carving in the copper um, metal I remember there's a word that I learned from the, my teacher in Slovakia. Uh, he's a master engraver and illustrator. His name is Mr. Dusan Kalai. And then uh, a lot of illustration he, he done was for the government, a lot of children's uh, uh, picture books and so on. Wonderful, wonderful works. And he was kind of telling me that if, if you want to learn how to do engraving, you have to learn to ha- ice skate first. That was uh, his condition. Okay. And uh, I knew how to do roller skate. Like, is that roller skate counts? Like, no, 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 no. You have to go to ice skate. And I found out in Slovakia, Republic, everybody ice skate there. It's that's their nation national thing. Uh, I mean, ice hockey is their national sports, I guess. And uh, I met a lot of people who don't know how to swim, <laughs> but okay. everybody know how to ice skate. Okay. So I find myself very inexpensive uh, blade, and then went to ice skating and a skate rink and in, in Bratislava. See this bunch of five years old kids they're passing me. You know, they're su- super fast, and I was kind of struggling to do it. But but uh, Professor Kali was what was he was telling me was basically the physical mark you make on the ice. It's it's kind of like that what you do on a copper plate. You're creating an illusion from the physical mark making. So, but the physical marking does communicate your uh, is evidence of activity. So, if you're gonna draw a line, make it gracefully. So that was kind of his message. And then, as so I learned to ice skate, learned to change my weight, bodies, and a lot of physics, you know, mm-hmm. and to do with uh, my understanding of the force, understanding with my motion of the, my bodies, and so on. And uh, that really helped me to understand what he was talking about. And then also, I have a the background growing up in Japan. I did a lot of calligraphy with a uh, brush with yeah. some ink on the p- white paper that's kind of similar philosophy they carry that and then you just hold the breast and then just concentrate and focus and draw the one stroke and if you're gonna and if you fail that you practice again 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 that kind of thing and the engraving was like a perfect medium for me to translate that kind of physical mark for that reason i think um understanding the speed uh or sometimes jump like i do enjoy doing that uh, snowboarding or recently I've been doing a lot of uh, kite surfing and kite surfing involves uh, uh, not just the surfing or not just the, uh, on the wakeboard or on the water but the understanding using the kite to lift myself up or propel or and then using the kite to uh, atmosphere movement to create the hydro hydrodynamic and and stay above in the water and then moving forward mm-hmm. and then that kind of thing uh, so I did a lot of drawing back then. Um, 
at the time, I didn't know. But now I look back, it just makes sense. They, these are the trace of the water. These are the trace of the wind or the flock of the birds or the school of fish, for instance. And uh, so the, this kind of spirit, uh, the idea, I guess, uh, or attitude maybe towards the drawing. And I still use it even today and kind of coming back again. And then I want to make the drawing that, that flows well. And, uh, and it flows and uh, it was also circulate too. I think that's the kind of idea of my drawing. I don't know if that makes so sense. So they're not you. stagnant. There's like certain. I want to. I want yeah, mo- to. Movement. movement. Yeah, I think that the uh, I've been making a lot of kite now. Yeah. And then so that's sort of kind of my own interpretation, understanding of this. Since I'm going to make artwork, that I want to make the the artwork that it's going to live somewhat, you know. And then I want the this piece of the paper or object has a spirit of its own. I remember when I was a kid, you know, you know, Japanese religion. I, I think that a lot of Japanese people are, um, I think, culturally they're Buddhist, but they're entirely not really. It's a more cultural thing. So, so uh, tr- there's traditional Japanese Shinto religion. Uh, there are I don't, I don't remember how many, like million gods, right? A million gods, whatever. Well, it means a lot, and they, every object has a god. That's kind of their. Um, idea um, so as a child and um, so because of that so do not waste object do not waste the water you know I mean the, uh, it recycle the paper for instance you know these kind of things are very well taught uh, because that's a country that has no natural resource and also the uh, religious uh, I, I the Shinto religion kind of encourage people to be uh, appreciative to to the object for instance mm. so each object has a god. And each object has a god, and then these gods are not necessary. That what we, what with Christianity, Western perspective of the gods is just sort of perfection. Like no, no, these gods, Japanese gods, are not perfect at all. In fact, they are kind of goofy and stupid and funny, and then they they have a little more human human character to it. So it's uh, so it's almost kind of forgiving, but still they are spirit. They're kind of they're being called as gods, so you have to give it respect, and they have to be really careful with it. So, uh, so this kind of treating object with a with a respect, and then uh, minimizing a waste, and then utilizing a maxim out of that object. What's capable of this object? For instance, paper. What can we do with this paper? And then you can print on it, but you can fold it. You can make a airplane out of it and fly it. For instance, you know, make a kite out of it. So I think I, the, my idea was to use uh, borrowing this kind of material. In my case, uh, it's a paper and bamboo and string and combined together. And then when wind blows, it flies. And when it flies, uh, they do sort of do their own dance, I guess. And uh, it's a, it has a life of its own in a way that beyond my control. Yeah. And the paper that you're using for the kite is mm-hmm. printed. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to maybe describe the types of images you're using. Uh, I've been working with a lot of symmetry images, and then that has a lot to do with balance. Uh, and um, also uh, my interest towards to uh, hydrodynamic and aerodynamic and forms that you know, quite often, a lot in the natural world, you see the symmetry in that. So I've been working with the entire prints folded. And then when you unfold it, find that this is a perfect um, perfection. Transfer from paper to paper makes this a kind of war shock mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, kind of system. And then so I made a print of those kind of things. And then uh, I've been making a lot of kites uh, with that symmetry images combined together. Uh, originally, I was printing uh, with from the copper plate 
to gumpy paper, thin Japanese paper, very super light but strong paper, and then collage together on a bamboo structure to make a kite. And then now I've been making、uh, with a different material, such as Tyvek, for instance. It's a lot stronger and bigger, and also inexpensive material, and printed on the relief printing and then making a larger kite. These are,、uh, I've been more working with a traditional kite. In the beginning, I was really excited about inventing box kites and, you know, Mm-hmm. Tetrahedron kites, and I mean, these are quite challenging. And, and yeah, some of them even look like creatures. Yeah, right. right. But now I'm kind of going back to this、uh, 2,000 years old hexagon rokkaku kite. And these are、um, just, just、uh, after going through different k i n d of design, just come back to this hexagon shape. And it's a perfect ratio. It's super balanced and、uh, extremely well designed. It's incredible. It's hard to see this is 6,000,、uh, 2,000 years old technology, but still good. It's a lot of fun to play, very stable. Yeah, that's why I've been working on it. And a lot of time, this bisymmetry results in these kind of like faces. That's right. Almost、mm-hmm. creatures. And, yeah. Yeah.、Right. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? You know, that's like a facial expression, or, or even I see like symmetry in the industrial design, or like architecture, for instance. You know, building has a face. Like an automobile definitely has a face, right?、Mm-hmm. This is so funny to. Uh, have a conversation with the industrial designer about,、uh, like, if you want to sell your sports car, you know, got to have some kind of attitude. But, but if you want to sell the family van, you got to have a more friendly out-、yeah. output to it. Right. And then another thing is, like, when you're driving in the nighttime, you follow the tail lamp. Lamp right in front of you on the highway, right? And then some are fringy looking tail lamps. You want to、yeah. get really close to it. Well, you don't want to get too close to do the tailgating, but、yeah. some of those like a sports car type of the vehicle, they usually have a kind of mean looking face. Just、yeah. stay away from more me. Aggressive. <laughs> more aggressive. You know? yeah. So I think that, that psychology fascinates me in a way. And then also, we do associate to look. If you see a couple dots, and then we consider that as eyes in a way. That's kind of how the human res- response、yeah. and, then, and then for our survival. And then we want to create this、uh, character or creature out of it, the abstract shapes. And if there's a, something you find that in a symmetry, and then we'll naturally we want to seek for something that we're feeling familiar. Because it's in our mind, if things are not familiar, To us, it's feel uncomfortable, and then we don't want to be in that condition. So, we want to have some kind of conclusion. And then it's just easy to decide okay, this is a face, this is a face, and then that's just it is, and then just move on. And you've also merged those types of images with your more of like the monotype、mm-hmm. prints, or like、right. where you're painting. It's like more immediate.、Uh-huh. Whereas, like, I think I'd written down the monotype prints are more spontaneous and unique, and then and the engravings are more calculated and、uh, reproducible.、Uh-huh. That's right. Tell me about the monotypes and the monotype, painting. Yeah, monotype is、uh, kind of going back to this、uh, Chinese painting, just atmosphere making. You know, it's not, I'm not necessarily making a, a tangible object, it's a creating an air, I guess, describing a light. And then what kind of light is that? And it's after the storm, or is it the light in the, under the water, or、uh, in a cave, for instance? You know?、uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be natural lights, it could be artificial lights too. So the monotype is a gray medium, especially the way I learned from the Myrna Burks. And then way back in the 80s, about the trans- use of transparency, which is kind of connected with this old Chinese painting, the, the Sumie painting in Japan, too. They,、mm-hmm. they pr- create this,、uh, this dynamic atmosphere that is moving. And then, and then a little bit, there is a bird, for instance. There is a creature, like maybe you find that dragon flying in the air, you know, stuff like that.、Uh, I don't really necessarily use dragon in my artwork, but、uh, creating an atmosphere with a monotype and having a very specific, tangible form through intaglio printing combined together.、Mm-hmm. I think that's what I've been kind of working on that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I like this quote from, I think it's from your, maybe your artist statement. You said, engaging in the journey of production provides an opportunity, an opportunity to discover significance in a series of arbitrary decisions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Decisions, right? God has to make it, uh, like or not. And then how do I evaluate was this decision good or bad? It's really hard to uh, because if we having a hard time, I mean, I have having a hard time making decision, and then often freeze that I can't take oh, any actions. Yeah. So I've been teaching the university for almost twenty years. Then I see those things happen. And graduate students come in with in- incredible ideas and very ambitious, you know, uh, minds coming to the program, but all of a sudden they just they freeze uh, because uh, the there's so many ideas, so many options, and then they cannot make decisions. And that's the worst. That's because there's the time just passed by, but I can't move. It's not moving. It's get stuck waiting for something to happen. Sometimes I have to wait, but uh, got to make some kind of decision. Good or bad is irrelevant. Got to have to make some kind of decision. But in order to make, put myself in a position, I have to take that first step in action, put myself in a position to make a decision. I don't know if that makes sense yeah. to you. Is the freezing, is that related to fear? or? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, fear, yeah, uncertainty. I, mean, I basically that come down to the fear, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it isn't. I don't get the impression that you're really that worried about failure. You probably see that mm-hmm. as just a part of the natural process of creating. Yeah, I do have a lot of failure prints myself. Yeah, yeah. So those are, but there's funny things too. Uh, what I'm learning from that in my own practice that um, when I make prints and then just that day, like, okay, I did it. It's great. Feel good. And then come back next day, like, wait a minute. It's not that great as I thought last night, you know, or the point that I made a really um, bad print. And then uh, years later, just look at it. Do you realize like, oh my God, this is the things I used to do. Like, here's this a uh, lot, another possibility. I can open this door, you know? And then there's another thing. So it's a failure or success is a, it's a really subjective and it's conditional. That's what I think. The one moment I might consider as a failure, but, but I learned something. So I guess since I learned something, maybe it wasn't a failure. Maybe a failure compared to if I had a very specific agenda or a specific goal, if that didn't meet it, yes, it will become a failure. But by having those prints, I will open up another possibility that I didn't even consider thinking of. So it's a, I think those are a fertilizer, you know? Probably it stinks in the beginning, uh, yeah. but it, it it will eventually become part of a, a very important uh, fuel for the creativity, and then try to solve the problem from that difficult condition in a way. Mm-hmm. So, I think the failure is extremely important. I had read in a little interview you did quite a while ago that you kept a sketchbook, and that was kind of a key thing yeah. for you. Did you. Do you still do that? I still do that. Yeah. yeah tell me how you use a sketchbook. I do use for everything. I mean, like the name of the author telephone number to okay. somebody's birthday to you know uh, i do draw i mean i don't want to call it drawing drawing sounds really formal but i doodle i guess i move the p- a pencil or pen on the surface of the paper make some kind of mark making and then i'm and then particularly i think of now i've been uh studying a lot of micro expressions and so on and then not just the human but the the primates for instance you mm. know how their facial expressions and the, and how they relate each other and so on too yeah, it's a uh, that's kind of I use of. So you're working through ideas. I guess so. I mean, or? I don't. It's a it's an idea is an elusive thing because in the beginning I have some. I mean, I guess you can call it an idea, um, but uh, but that you know first it's very crude, and then I don't even know why I'm interested in this topic, for instance, and but just keep doing that, and then realizing 
and then there's the moment of realization like hey i used to do this or maybe there's something i saw it somewhere and i can connect that together and then so the collecting a different kind of data and then real it's i can see a reflection myself i think so that's why it's important to uh, use for my own practice to use a some kind of recording device, I guess. In this case, the sketchbook, a piece of paper and pen, I guess, that yeah. are nothing new. I mean, people have been using that for you know years and years, and then I think it will continue to do so. It's, it's a different from computer. You know, actually writing a piece of paper is this experience of that. It goes into the brain a lot more quicker, I think. Mm. And uh, the computer is, uh, it's, has a wonderful memory capability, and then you can do a lot of sophisticated things. But does it go into my brain? Probably not so much. But So that's the exercise of the drawing I exercise of actually moving a pen uh, or writing even the writing helped me to yeah uh, memory like journaling or- journaling is a it's a more uh, connected with emotion I think like a, rather than I guess uh, someone told me about the invention of a typewriter changed the way people write for instance you know mm-hmm. so I think that um the sketchbook is extremely important and uh, and I kept all the sketchbook from way way back then so I have this box in the in the corner of my studio if I hit the wall, I don't know what to do. So I just go there and then oh, wow. open up the sketchbook from 1992, you know, when I was back in college. Or And then there's a lot of things, some lot, some uh, embarrassing things yeah. in there. Just looking, <laughs> oh my God, that's not what I was, I was doing. This but but the, I mean, there's a lot of unopened doors that I hmm. didn't tap into it. So when I go back there, I realize, oh, wait a minute, I was thinking about this. And now I'm looking same topic in different perspective like if, so if i go in there because uh, uh i did consider making kite like object back then and when i was an undergraduate in college actually and uh, like symmetry things that i was i was doing when i was undergrad now those kind of technical things just come back and you know 20 30 years later it's like okay very useful and i'm gonna go back there again you know yeah. So I think it's important because I, I can't remember all that stuff, you know. And this yeah. idea comes up, but it's uh, if it's valuable or not valuable, I'm not really sure. So I might as well just write down, you know, or draw it out and then mm-hmm. just keep it. And then if I run out of uh, idea, I may come back to that and then maybe dig a little deeper perhaps. So. Do you have it with you all the time or do you have a certain time of day where you sit down and kind of dr- drain? Um, I usually have it in my bag, I guess. Yeah. So, so if I'm you know uh waiting somewhere at the university or uh traveling somewhere at the airport for instance you know and just write down things and uh, if i meet with somebody somebody told me some new words like never heard before you know uh-huh. or name of the artist and stuff like that yeah i think that's that's kind of nice device yeah yeah it's, a, it's a very important and i really encourage that to my students as well yeah are there any other tools or kind of uh, approaches that you encourage your students to try just mm. if they're considering being an artist oh. <laughs> as a career artist as a career yeah I think sketchbook is a very very essential things and uh, have a good shoes oh yeah footwork I walk a lot <laughs> at the print shop uh, yeah move a lot and because there's, there's things that I cannot figure out in my head and the things I cannot uh, speculate or predict I just have to take action and mm. then, um, so in order to do that, I'd have good shoes. So that's and be healthy. Bit. <laughs> Human body, and then the, the come down to it, it's a, the health is a, such an asset. And then, so it's uh, maintain that good health is very important. I mean, I did my own you know, very abusive share when I was twenties. I drank a lot and smoked a lot and so on. But but come down, come to I'm 51 right now, th- thinking that like how many more years I have left? You know, how many more summers do I have? 
how many more prints I have. I think there is a number, yes. But, you know, everybody has this expire date, right? So, what can we do while we are capable? It's not just a living, but uh, I can can physically, I'm physically capable. I can walk and pick up things. I can grind a stone. I can draw on it. You know, I mean, those are, it's a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you think about the future? How do you think about like what you'd like to accomplish in the rest of your life? Uh, What are you looking forward to doing? Mm. Well, <laughs> I've been kind of excited about this uh, kite surfing, and, uh, and I think I'll continue to do this. And uh, I'm learning to do this uh, activity with a very minimum amount of effort, meaning that um, in the beginning I was learning those kind of sports or uh, any of those, uh, those physical activity that I was uh, – in, in the learning process, uh, use a lot of energy that is wasted. But uh, after uh, have somewhat of experience, and I can sort of predict what's going to happen, and I can use a very minimum amount of effort to do those kind of activity, and then that kind of goes to the, my art practice as well. In my heart, it's like I have to work hard. I mean, hard. And what does a hard mean? Is it quantifiable, or I mean, I could work smart by u- utilizing that uh, fair minimum amount of energy to get the maximum amount of effect or the result in a way. Mm-hmm. Art practice doesn't only takes in the studio for me it's like for instance I, mean, I like to go to hike I like to climb mountains you know I like going surfing and then kiteboardings and snowboardings and those kind of act, you know mountain biking those kind of activity I do that and then I think these are very creative exercise for me we're talking about decision making right yeah. so like a, uh, like snowboarding or any of that there is a there's a moment one has to make a decision and the consequence can be severe too, but yeah. and then, but has to make some. It requires a commitment. I'm working on a kite board. There's things called the kite loop, which is like you have to turn the kite very quickly, and this can be very very scary. It produces a lot of energy. But if I was uh, uh, committed, and if I feel insecure in the middle of the day, if I quit it, and then there will be disaster. I'm going to hurt myself doing that. Mm. So if I commit, I have to do it all the way. Even it can be very scary. But if you commit. It's a it's a less uh, of a of a disaster. That's the I think the metaphor. I can say that. Yeah. About it almost of, seems like you're doing these things outside of the studio mm-hmm. that are much more risky. It seems like it would be almost easier to make take risks in the studio because it maybe doesn't seem like the consequences consequences are, quite are as sure dire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But I guess you could ruin a whole piece of paper or a plate or something. I mean, like that. it could be a financial risk, and uh, I mean time. I guess uh, anything yeah. you build up and it's gonna you might jeopardize the whole thing. So there's that type of risk, and uh, I mean less likely physically. You know, we're gonna try to keep it as safe as environment in, in yeah. the print shop as much as possible. You know, but I think the other physical art, uh, the practice. Yes, there are some dire consequences, but uh, of course, I know I learned the safety equipment and then uh, you know how to do it right way or how to do in safe way in a way you know? and then still having fun there's still the room for the creativity comes in there and that's I think that I found very similar to the artistic practice as well as my another uh, activity such as kite surfing mm-hmm. mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about the business side sure. of being an artist uh, there, there is a lot of uh, the obstacle uh, the artists have to go over it and they figure it out way to make it um, and then first uh, my intention for going to Eastern Europe was to reduce cost of production and uh, so outsourcing myself to go to the country where their time is relatively inexpensive Poland's not the same country anymore right now Poland's actually a very expensive place now mm. so it was it was a I 
could do those kind of activity in 19, early 90s, but it's not the same anymore, for instance. Yeah. So the business aspect of the uh, producing artwork and bring to the different locations. And uh, artwork, uh, by traveling, what happens in artwork starts having a story of its own. And uh, so uh, um, it's not the production itself, but the, what this artwork gone through and then that started to create and generate the value in a strange way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the people who buy artwork, is, I mean, they um, must be really fascinated with the object itself, but also, you know, who made it and then how it's made it and you know, what gone through behind that. And that also become a value in a yeah. way that adds to the number, I think. So I think that's another thing about making a kite rather than I don't necessarily consider there are art object. Um, but I'd like to call them as a kite, and because once I call it kite, the uh, once the art it becomes like extremely precious, and then I don't want to damage things, and then you know I want to make sure everything's dust free and pH yeah. neutrals and archival yeah. material. But once I say kite, kite will fly, and then once I was in residency in Joshua Tree National Park, and the wind was so strong, and then my kite was destroyed, and then bring back and tape it down, and then I didn't have a glue, so I had to. Re- cook the rice and the rice put the rice paste over top paper and it was a it was kind of a very crude object but it flew so it was a kite so it was its artwork well it's a has a little bit of history it's not pretty anymore but it does have a history and that, that history is very interesting hmm. so once i fly the kite it's kind of like a like baptizing the artwork yeah to the air and become kite and then now have life of its own and i can present that as a you know my piece of artwork yeah, it's like interacted with the world instead of being so sequestered in a file or something or right. in a frame. Yeah, yeah, it's being used. Yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah. Maybe just like a final question. How do you think about your role as an artist in the world or how do you, or or just the role of artists in general? Role of artists in general. I mean, there's so many uh, different formats and appreciation. And uh, I mean, of course, like everybody's an artist in some sense, you know. Um, I think the role of the artist that is that I mean, it's try to make the the living thing is fun. I guess yeah. that's that's kind of simple as that. And then, like if people who like if a chef, you know, people in the culinary art, I guess you can call it too. Like for instance, my mother, you know, she would she's not consider herself an artist, but the you know the soup she makes is incredible. For instance, you know, so there mm-hmm. is a type of the thought and work and getting involved to to the perfection and I think everybody has a, a right to call themselves an artist and um, also to communicate and then to open to different type of ideas different type of expressions and so on I mean of course we have a preference and you know liking and you know taste I guess those are other things too when it comes to the business yes we have to kind of communicate with a larger audience I guess uh, that's only if the goal was to make it financially successful but if if not, that's not always the case. Not everybody's looking at just making the artwork itself is just fun, you know fun things to do. That's kind of how I started it myself. You know, um, coming to the United States first. I mean, I didn't speak English at all. So how how? Do, but I still need to communicate. So what I did, I made a lot of drawings, and mm. that's kind of how I communicated. And then I remember my friend that we didn't speak language together. I mean, I didn't speak English at all. Uh, I was you know 15 years old. Come to Dayton, Wyoming, small town in the northern Wyoming. A friend of mine took me to go fishing together. For instance, yeah, we didn't speak. I mean, we tried to speak, but I don't know how much he tried to communicate with me. He tried to explain about how to tie a, a roar into the string and how to catch a fish and so on. And then you know, very kind, very generous. But you know, in order to communicate with him, and I learned to sort of 
like draw for instance you know that was kind of type of the level of communication so i think um what i'd like to say to the well because i'm a teacher and then students uh working for it and then what it is it's uh, uh what i'd like to say like if you love something you're fascinated to it commit to it and then just keep doing it. i mm-hmm. think that's the only thing a lot of people do quit i think that's uh the reality of it you know and then a lot of people do quit and then so i it, what i have is a stamina i think that's what i yeah i, I think i'm pretty i'm pretty good at it that's what i have i think that i'm not that smart that i cannot apply the many things and that uh, i do have a strong leg and good health so as long as that keep me going i will continue to produce artwork and then that makes me happy uh having a purpose i guess yeah, how do you do? You think ever think about your legacy, or like what what kind of legacy you'd uh, like to leave behind? I don't know. That's kind of scary to think about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be entirely responsible for. Like, for instance, I'm recording this talk that it might be used against me someday. Oh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but but if that gonna be a legacy, well, if I could encourage somebody, you know, that um, making artwork is definitely exciting things to do, and then, and then to appreciate the community, the people around me that 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 support what i do and i can communicate with the the friends uh all over the world really we don't necessarily speak the same language but uh, we're interested in printmaking for instance yeah i mean that's that's a incredible uh, value to me and to there i feel safe in a way i i had a group show in romania recently and these are the people most of them i never i know their artwork you know i seen their face in facebook for instance but I never had a conversation with them. But I know their artwork. You know, that feel that okay, there's somebody there that I totally understand what they're doing, and mm. then I get really excited about it. In, in, in fact, it, they do inspire me. So that that person I never met before can inspire me, and mm. and that's kind of artwork. When I was in Portland, Oregon, they have a wonderful print collection there, and they had this a great collection of uh, uh, Piranesi prints. And I studied hard. I looked at the real original Piranesi, and then I brought. A, I had to wear gloves to handle those prints. And then looking through a microscope, you know, mm. mag, not micro uh, magnified glass, but that with a microscope and oh, see wow. that ink and uh, and there's uh, lines and you know, there's sometimes scratching the plates or even the fingerprints. I found, you know, that in a way that makes me feel uh, it's yeah. There's a there's a person. Uh, you know, it's not a fantasy. It's like what well, we kind of like tend tendency to worship somebody in an art history book but yeah no they're they're average you know regular human being and they you know did what they did and then they're good at it sure but uh, it's kind of like those japanese gods you know they're somewhat kind of goofy and some funny and some are really incredible you know so it's yeah. just so many diversity i guess that makes me feel i'm one of it so that means that allow me to do what i can do not necessarily try to think about what reception will will be but no i like i want to make something i that pleases me i guess like kind yeah. of really self-serving in the, in the many ways but that that is a very strong motivation i think yeah yeah and you said you have kids right yes i have some yeah i'm wondering if you had to impart like one thing to them mm-hmm. that they could take on for the rest of your life let's say if you weren't going to be around what what do you think would be like the most important thing that you would want to as a, to know Oh, to, about life, about going forward with their life. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that's the important part is uh, like if it's a life, it's it's whatever that time amount of time we don't know. I mean, the general lifespan is like what seventy to eighty years, and, but that's 
if you're lucky, I guess, you know, yeah. all kind of things happens. And uh, so there's no guarantee. We all have expired date. And then that's, that's a natural or accidental or just who knows, right? So uh, I think that it's hard to uh, to have a, a reason for life or the entire life. But the, how about today? You know, what, what I'm going to do today? You know, what I'm going to do next two hours? I guess. Yeah. It's a relatively short term, you know. And then I do have an artistic plan. I don't have a life plan. I have. Oh. I do have. Uh, there's artistically. There's things I want to do, and uh, so that's what I'm going to move in towards direction. And I put myself, in, you know, uh, to that challenge. And uh, but the, as far as life goes, um, really, that's another kind of part of growing up in Japan. That there's so many earthquakes there. <laughs> There, there's, there's a somehow so many what earthquakes. Oh, earthquakes, uh, earthquakes yeah. and typhoons, and then there's natural disaster constantly. That's the kind of place I grew up, and uh, well, it's not only limited to Japan, but definitely concentrated in that area, that island. So there are a lot of Japanese people think that uh, it's the um, everything is conditional. It's yeah, nothing is permanent. You know, everything is uh, supposed to change. It's difficult to accept that, but there's nothing we can do about it. So, so to kind of accept that our our powerlessness, I guess, and then try to make the human history seems very tangible, but in fact, when you really, well, what I think about the human history is that it's not only in a history book. Like every day, there's so many things happen. Even today, there's so many things happen. You can watch watch the news and what's going on in Washington D.C. and so on. But the, I think that's what is the important things happen is right in front of me you know what's going on right in front of me and here now i guess i mean it's kind of cliche somewhat but uh, i be think in that the moment be in a moment just yeah. uh, uh i want to make a print today and then you know, i'm going to make good prints and then that if that goes it's good so end of the day when i go to sleep like oh, okay i have a good day hope yeah. i can do this tomorrow again nice yeah well i really appreciate your time thank you very much it was a great uh pleasure to share with you about very uh depth in the my ideas and then my past thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk yeah no worries and good luck with everything that you're doing great thank you thank you thank you thanks for listening one more thing before you go if this episode or any other i've produced have helped you or added value to your life please support the podcast so it can continue and grow just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you, and take care.